Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Before he went to the cross, imagine Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. You know, he's had a three-year ministry. Uh, If you look at the Gospel of Mark, he kind of slows down halfway through the book and kind of gives you a play-by-play of the last week leading up to his death on the cross. We see Jesus heading to Jerusalem, and he resolutely sets his face toward it. He knows where he's going. He knows what's going to happen ultimately once he gets there. In Mark 10, verse 32, it says, They, referring to Jesus and the disciples, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. As I said, Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He knew what was fixing to go down. It's what he was born for. It's what he came to do. He came not only to live, he came to die so that you and I might live. I want to read just a a portion from this book, Christ in Church Leadership. It's really good. It kind of sets the stage for what I want to talk about tonight. The authors, uh, Paul Winslow and Norman Folliwell, say this, In three short years, the combination of Jesus' penetrating words, powerful miracles, and voices from heaven that attested to his deity had catapulted him to prominence. It had been an uphill climb, and he was now scaling the most difficult height yet. Ever upward, further up and further forward, step by step, As he walked steadily uphill, he lifted his eyes. He was going to Jerusalem, to Calvary. He led the way, choosing the path, leading in prayer, knowing where the road was heading. He was a leader. He was the leader. He was the only leader. He still is. And that's so true. They continue, for those of us who wish to lead by following Christ, we can expect two things. Often we'll be amazed and at times we will be afraid. If you remember what I read just a moment ago in Mark 10, as they were following Jesus who was ahead of them, they were amazed and they were afraid. We will be amazed because He will lead if we let Him and His leadership will be far richer and more profound than our own. We will be amazed as we watch him build a house that none could envision because he does beyond what we ask or think. We will be amazed to see how well he leads the church that bears his name when we trust in his leadership and lordship relinquishing our own control. But it's exactly this loss of control that will cause us to be afraid. When we lead by attempting to cling to control, we might ensure that nothing crazy begins to happen. We can refrain from making waves. We may shore up our own base of power and perpetuate our leadership in office. We can minimize risk and keep the wild cards hidden deep in our stacked deck. 
Leadership by our own control is not life-giving, but it's understandable. It is, to our human way of thinking, security. The fear that makes us want to seize control is normal. The weight of the responsibility that leadership brings can easily bury us. We have two choices in handling the fear. Give in to it either by seizing control ourselves or allowing someone else to seize control, or to walk through it, fixing our mind on Christ and His leadership. And so we have a choice. When we follow Christ, many times we're either a Look, if you will, in Mark 10 again. And right after what I read is the next story, Mark 10, verse 35. We'll continue on. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and they said, Teacher, we want to do what we want you to do whatever we ask you. And Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And they answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said, We are able. And Jesus told them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you'll be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, and I'll stop there because we'll get to that in a moment. So, Here, we're reminded that leadership by the flesh has two mantras. We want or we are able. We want is a coalition. I want is an agenda. And James and John were rushing ahead saying, we want this. How different it could have been if they said, Lord, what do you want? I like what uh, the authors say here. They say, coalitions built built on the shaky pillars of we want and we are able, produce conflict. What a mess along this road to Jerusalem and how this kind of mess has permeated the church. Church politics, power plays, informal and institutional hierarchies, the never-ending jockeying for glory and position is pervasive in the church. And that's why Jesus stopped in His tracks, called the men to Himself, and revealed to them the principle of leadership within his kingdom. So now let's go back to that passage in Mark 10 again. In Mark 10, picking up in verse 42, when the disciples have heard what James and John have done, they're indignant, and Jesus hears them, and then he says these words. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Four words I want you to zero in on. Not so among you. Go back and look at that again in verse 43. But it is not so among you. And then he begins to talk about servant leadership, of which he's the example and the model of. 
It reminds me of what Peter wrote in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5. Peter said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. He didn't play the apostle card. He said, I exhort the elders as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over. Remember Jesus said the Gentiles do that? Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Another quote from Christ in Church Leadership book. The authors say, Jesus shares a revolutionary vision, a new vision in Mark 10. He begins with the words, but it is not so among you. Now Jesus did not say, but it should not be so among you. Nor did He say, take all precaution to guard against this, lest it become so among you. But rather He said, it's not so among you. Why did He say this? Why is this? It's because we already have our lead man, Jesus Christ. He's in charge, even when we do everything we can to overlook this fact. With Christ in charge, the whole issue of power and position is forever settled. He holds all power and authority over all things on earth and in heaven. All authority belongs to Him. We are simply called upon to serve Him and do His will. All that to say this, biblical leadership is following Jesus. Now I know that that's simple, but it's also profound. Someone once said that now you're intelligent if you're able to state the obvious because we live in an age where we forget the obvious. The obvious is biblical leadership is about following Jesus. You see, our journey of following Christ means allowing Him to serve and lead through us. We can permit no thoughts about politics, power, personal achievement, glory, or legacy. It's all about Him and what He wants. He must be enough, and His desires must be ours. As soon as we entertain the we want or we are able mantras, we've taken our eyes off our lead man. Leadership is leadership on its knees, kneeling in prayer, humbly submitting to God's will. That's what biblical leadership is. So let's go back for a minute and revisit Jesus on His way to Jerusalem. As I started a few minutes ago, when you read the first part there of Mark 10, Jesus is leading the way, and they're following along behind Him. He's got His face set toward Jerusalem. He knows what's going to go down. He warns them. You know, the Son of Man's going to be handed over. He's going, to be, uh, he's going to be killed, but on the third day He will rise again. He knew exactly what He was going to face. How could He lead so well? I think the secret to Jesus' leadership is revealed in another verse, going back to a different scene in His earthly ministry. 
The verse I'm thinking of is John 5, verse 19. The Gospel of John 5, 19. Jesus was speaking and He made this statement. He said, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on His own, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Do you want to know why Jesus was so effective as a leader? And why, I mean, yes, He's the Son of God, but, but more than that, when you look at the, the tactical part of His life, how did He do everything so well? He had a relationship with His Father, and whatever His Father did, that's what He did. There's definitely a lesson in that. Jesus still walks on ahead of us today, leading the way. The fact that He leads has not changed. Our job is to follow. Eyes fixed on our lead man, leading on our knees, and looking for opportunities to serve. It's definitely a, a good read. But enough of that. That was just setting the table. So let's look tonight at this question of how does a plurality of elders function. And let's dive into the Scriptures and let's look at an actual, real-life, practical example. And the one that stands out head and shoulders above the rest is Acts 15. In the book of Acts, in chapter 15, you have a landmark moment in the timeline history of the early church. We know that when Jesus died and rose again, He purchased our salvation. He gave the great commission to His disciples to preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples of all nations. And then He told them right before He went up into the clouds, He says, wait for the Holy Spirit. You've got so many Gentiles that have heard the gospel and they're coming to Jesus Christ that a lot of Jewish folks said, wait a minute, time out. Shouldn't they be circumcised? Shouldn't they keep the law? I mean, look at our heritage. We've got the patriarchs. We've got the prophets. We've got the promises of God. We've got, we've got the, the scriptures. We've got the Messiah. We've got all these things. Shouldn't they get with the program? There was a group that came down from Judea and began to teach others in Acts 15, verse 1, unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Boom! How's that for putting it down? After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. And when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. We definitely have a crisis on our hands. You can feel it in the air. You see, the issue in this situation is salvation. 
is it Jesus plus nothing? Or is it Jesus plus something? And you fill in the blank. You can fill in the blank with circumcision, keeping the law, anything else you want to throw in there. But it boils down to, is salvation Jesus plus nothing? Or Jesus plus something? Well, let's look on in verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. Here from the very beginning, you expect the apostles to handle this. You know, the guys that followed Jesus around for three years that were eyewitnesses of everything from beginning to end. But you also have the elders, because there were elders in the Jerusalem church, and we've already talked about that. But just, again, I want to point out the obvious. So the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. And it says, after there had been much debate, I wonder how much uh, time that covered. Was that a few hours? Several minutes? A couple of days? I don't know how long they debated, but I'm sure they had one well of a debate. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall? But after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Now, Peter's referring to something we can read about in Acts chapter 10. When God gave um, Peter a vision, and he was really coming to terms with this vision, what it was and what it meant, and then there was a knock on the door and a couple of men were inviting him to go with them. And through the vision and through the visitors that knocked on the door, God let Peter know in no uncertain terms, you need to go with them, and you tell the people that you're going to meet what I want you to, what I want you to tell them. Peter follows them. He ends up going to a man's house. The man's name is Cornelius. He's a Gentile. If you know your culture of Jewish culture, it's not kosher for a Jew to go into a Gentile's home back in Bible times. He's breaking some of the rules, if you will. But he goes to Cornelius' home and he begins to tell them about Jesus crucified, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, coming back someday. Repentance in His name, and how you can be saved, faith through Christ. And all of a sudden, these Gentiles, not only do they hear it, but they believe it, and they get it. They get saved. And the Holy Spirit does with them what happened when Peter preached the first time and 3,000 people got saved when, you know, in Jerusalem. And so, so here is Peter testifying to that. And he says in verse 8, he says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. 
I love Peter's argument, if you notice the subtlety of it. We're, we're saved the same way they are. Instead of saying they're saved the same way we are. Subtle, but boy, does he make the point. Then, in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they stopped speaking, James responded. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon which is another name for Peter, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for His name. And the words of the prophet agree with this, as it's written. And if you look this up, he pulls a, a, a verse or two from Amos and another one from Isaiah, and he makes an application here. He says, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the James, the brother of Jesus, the same James that um, wrote the letter of James in the New Testament, the Lord's uh, brother. James begins to think about what's in Scripture, and he says, ah, and he points to it and quotes it, and then they make a decision. And notice, this is what it says here. It says, do not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. That, at the end of the day, that was the verdict. Let's not make it difficult for those turning to God. Peter said, look, the law was a yoke to us. We couldn't bear it. Why do you think they should? And so the thought was, don't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And then they are to abstain from four things. Now I want us to look very quickly at how decisions were made. The first thing you saw was debate. And I would say that's normal. Anytime you've got a, a, uh, a problem to solve, a crisis uh, looming, you're going to get heads in the circle and you're going you're to debate it. You're going to debate all the options, how good the options are, the merits of each one, but you're going to debate it. Because you want to know exactly what you're up against. But if you just stay there, you're just depending on your best thinking, and that's not good enough. The second thing they did to make decisions was the testimony about God's work. They heard from Peter and what God had done through him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They heard from Paul and Barnabas and how God had used them to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Then... After the testimony about God's work, you had application of Scripture. You had James, the Lord's brother, and he began to say, well, God predicted and He promises that He will save Gentiles that call on His name. And now here we are hearing testimony stories of Gentiles that are calling on His name. Sounds to me like God's Word is true and we're seeing it happen right in front of our eyes. And so James applied God's Word to the situation. But the sweetest part of this is what I'm going to read next, and that is the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you look there in uh, verse 22, the rest of the story, the elders, uh, the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Do you see that? It started with leadership, 
but the church also agreed, okay? That's how it works. The apostles and elders were in agreement. They share it with the church. Together with the whole church, they decide to select men among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas in order to share this message. And they wrote a letter, and in verse 23, here's what it says. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings, since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. And he mentions those four things, and it says you will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. The last thing you see in how they made decisions was the witness of the Holy Spirit. For many years, I read the the NIV, and the NIV NIV reads, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. I love that. So that's how decisions were made. When it comes to a plurality of elders and how they make decisions, they will debate. They will look to see what God is doing in their midst. They will go to God's Word to, to, to... apply God's Word to a situation, an issue, or a problem. But ultimately, they have to be able to say as a body, it seemed good to the world and the, the theories and principles that are out there, and they're all good. I, you know, I, I'm, of, I'm of the persuasion that this uh, sacred-secular um, dichotomy that we talk about today is really a it's just a, a way of looking at things that we've made up because honestly, all truth is God's truth. I mean, He's the one that started everything. And so we have to back up and go, leadership is following Jesus. And let's seek to follow Jesus. Well, that's all I have tonight, so I just want to challenge you. Humble yourself, seek the Lord, and ask the Lord what He wants. Let's pray. Father, we come before You tonight. Thank You for Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would use this uh, Scripture that we've looked at tonight to stir our hearts, Lord. That when we look in the Scriptures at how the, the church was born and the Gospel exploded and broke all the barriers, and more and more people that were completely different from each other began to come to know You, that you still were the leader. You were still the Lord. And you used a group of godly men to lead the congregation forward in a way that did not glorify a man or the men, but it glorified you, the head of the body. Lord, may we seek you and hear from you And as a result, say and do the same thing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. 
To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.